Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to the Pocket Podcast. If you thought Apple and Amazon were the only tablets worth looking at, think again. Samsung hasn't given up the ghost yet and is releasing yet more tab models for those that want an alternative to the iPad. Pocket features editor Britta Abor joins me to discuss the announcement. Later on in the podcast, I talk to George Fawn, CTO of Ascot Racecourse, about how the site that's been seeing racing since 1711 is embracing technology to stay relevant in a world full of technology. And Pocket editor Chris Hall talks to me about whether you should buy a Kindle if you like reading. And if so, with so many to now choose from, which one is the best one to get? Britta, back to you. Can you walk us through what Samsung announced this week? And I understand we've got lots more surprises in the week to come. Yes. So this week they have announced uh, a new Tab um, S, which is called the Galaxy Tab S6. Um, it is pretty much a competitor to the iPad Pro. Um, it comes with a S Pen, which has lots of big changes, uh, new gestures supported and S Pair Air Actions, thanks to a Bluetooth connection. Um, it will allow you to control video and photo functions if the tablet's not in your hands, for example. And it's got Dolby Atmos and AKG tuned quad speakers. So it should be pretty good for entertainment on the go. The S Pen also connects magnetically, which is pretty tidy and it charges wirelessly similar to what the pencil will do on the ipad pro the initial approach there sounds like it's going up against the sort of the ipad pro and maybe even the microsoft surface do we think this is a new trend for for tablets having you know sort of gone through that whole let's just surf and watch netflix on them are we now seeing them as productivity tools i think so yeah i think i think they had to go that way to be able to survive in this industry especially since smartphones can do so much more now i mean they've got to be two two devices otherwise why would you pay that much money for something you could do on your phone i think productivity was definitely something they needed to go towards um that the tab s has always been a pretty good tablet but obviously it's got some serious competition in that field but the s pen hopefully will will be key for some people cool and so that wasn't the only thing that they announced i know they haven't fully announced it but they've teased that a new watch is coming yes yeah, so they've teased they did a teaser video just before the tab um s6 was announced uh which had the galaxy active 2 um involved in the video as well that watch is the successor to the galaxy watch active that was announced alongside the s10 devices earlier this year so it hasn't been around for that long so perhaps quite surprising that it's coming out so soon, but it's supposed to have a touch bezel around the display along with ECG functions, although that's not supposed to be there at launch, and a full detection and AFib notification. So basically it's the competitor to Apple Watch Series 4. And do we think that this has got what it takes to take on the mighty power of the Apple Watch and Garmin smartwatches and, and Fitbit and things? <laughs> Isn't that the million dollar question? Well, basically, I think for, because it's compatible with both iOS and Android, that obviously gives it a slight edge over the Apple Watch in that 
um, Android users can use it, whereas they can't with Apple Watch, of course. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it will compete. So they've got they've got a tough gig. And there we go. Thanks very much. You can stay up to date with all the latest updates of the Samsung and variety on pocketlint.com. Still to come, we asked Chris whether it's still worth buying an Amazon Kindle, and if so, which one? Well, I think the starting place for this is talking about the display itself. And this is one of the points that some people don't quite grasp, especially now that there is illumination on Kindles, is exactly what you're looking at. Ascot Racecourse, famous for the annual Royal Ascot meeting in June, is one of the UK's premier sporting locations. But with a tech-savvy audience that can see a race from multiple locations across the day, making sure those that attend are entertained and kept in the loop is a tough job. I caught up with George Fawn, the racecourse's chief technology officer, to see how Ascot is embracing tickler's entry, is using sensors in the hospitality boxes to monitor air quality, and treating the entire stadium as one big smart city. After a tour to see some of the new tech innovations already in place, we sat down to have a further chat as the racecourse got ready for the next big series of race meetings. I started by asking him how he uses tech at the racecourse today. Um, well, I think we have to be mindful here at Ascot Racecourse that uh, we are a very traditional venue. So when we introduce technology to a business like ours, we're obviously thinking about what's best for the customer, but we also want to preserve the traditional aspects that make us so unique. Um, there are a number of aspects uh, of technology that we've looked to deploy for the first time this year. Um, outside of upgrading the boxes, bringing in things like uh, new screens for the venue in general. We've enhanced and upgraded the audio as part of a big global partnership deal with, uh, with Bose. Um, we're looking at introducing more low-level technology like new point of sale across the venue, uh, which for the first time will give us much greater control over how we operate bars, how we actually interact with the customer uh, and how operationally we run. Um, we've introduced Simple things, well, for a lot of people they're simple, uh, in terms of NFC ticketing for the first time. You see there's an evolution when it comes to technology that, uh, that I think uh, means that it's constantly churning and constantly changing. And sport in general has been pretty good at adopting and evolving with these changes. So for us it was just like a natural step. So when you say NFC, is that moving towards sort of Apple Wallet and, and very much like an airport experience of, of, of ticketing? So you, you get rid of the, the paper tickets, you just use your phone or your, or your watch and you, you sort of zap your way in. That's absolutely it. So um, the facility now exists for us to offer a digital ticket to a customer and they can download it, whether they're an Android or an iPhone user, to their device and then just scan that device um, at the turnstile. And how do you feel that's going to change the way that ticketing works? Is that very much, you know, do you have people go, oh, I've lost my ticket, and you're like, well, it's on your phone, or, or what have you, or will that stop ticket touts and, and things like that? I think there's a number of benefits there. For a start, I don't think this is anything new. Anybody that's, uh, that flies regularly, okay, will be familiar with the way that apps work and the way that digital ticketing works already. Um, I think it could help in terms of ticket touts. I think it will improve the customer experience. Ultimately, even if you look at this down to, to a finite degree, it's a sustainability, sustainability issue as well in terms of we don't have to print paper tickets anymore. We can deliver a ticket directly to a customer's device. And let's face it, 
most people might come out and forget their keys. Some people might come out and forget their wallet, but very few people go out and forget their phone. And if they have their phone with them, not only can they now have their ticket delivered to that, but they could come to the venue and actually spend money at the bars just using that device. So it becomes a singular multi-purpose device that can actually do an end-to-end -end solution for the customer. They could pay for their train ticket, they could access the venue, they could buy them their food, they could even place a bet using that same handset. That was going to be one of my questions, is obviously when people talk about horse racing, a lot of people talk about betting. And you sort of come to Royal, you come to Ascot, whether it's Royal or, or not, and you see, you know, the traditional uh, bet stands, you know, the traditional bookies at the front, sort of, you know, taking, taking the money, passing out slips. Do you see that as a stage of, of encouraging them as well in the future to perhaps go, you know, rather than saying, have you got a fiver on you or a tenner, to just sort of tap and, and bet that way as well? Absolutely. Well, we explored that this year with some mobile devices uh, as part of Bet with Ascot. And I, and I was interested to note that when we went, to, uh, we went to certain bookies, they had the Apple Pay sign there. So they're not exclusively cash anymore anyway. Um, and when you think about cash as a concept, it's certainly a payment um, mechanism that's on the decline. I mean, more and more people are using card, and that evolution from card to handset is happening and will continue to happen. And how do you see with the technology, you know, racing here has been around for 300 odd years, everywhere you go there's 1711 written on, on the site, how do you see technology changing the race goers experience over even, not the next 300 years, but over, certainly over the next decade? Well it's interesting, when I, <clears throat> when I came to, to Ascot, um, I'd come to a venue that um, had its last major technological overhaul back in 2006 when the stand was first uh, or was built um, and I think that over that period of time between then and 2018 when I started so much had changed in the world okay 2006 was a world that predated the smartphone pretty much or certainly the iPhone and think about how we've evolved over that period of time I think the pace of change um, is going to be much faster Therefore, I think the next 10 years in reality, in technology terms, is probably just five. Um, so when you talk about the change of experience, I think a lot of things that we will look to introduce will be things that customers generally are already familiar with in other sectors. Um, a very simple one, uh, in my previous life when I, when I worked at Twickenham, um, we looked at bringing contactless and cashless to the venue, and Twickenham was the first fully cashless open loop stadium. Um, when I first suggested the idea in, in 2012, people said, no, nobody wants to pay by card. Nobody's going to use contactless. And lo and behold, five years later, it, it had happened. But it wasn't us that drove that. It was what people wanted outside of a stadium. So because they could travel and pay contactless, because they could go to their supermarket and pay contactless, it's just a natural evolution. Um, my biggest argument at that point was you wouldn't go into a restaurant and uh, expect to be told, you can't pay by card for your meal. You can only pay by cash. So it should be exactly the same philosophy in all the other sectors. So when we look at change, I think we'll introduce new ideas, and we're already exploring outside of what I've already mentioned, things like virtual reality, augmented reality. But it's got to be things that people are already familiar with. I think the true experience is what happens out there on the racetrack. That's what they come to see. And anything else that we do just needs to enhance what they're already familiar with. So if they know how to pay by card, 
make sure that anybody can pay by card at any location so it makes life easier. You don't want to have to leave the venue having worried about the fact that you couldn't pay for something in the way that you expected to pay for it or you couldn't experience something in the way that you would ordinarily have experienced it elsewhere. What makes us unique is the customer service and what happens out there on that, on that racetrack as well. Now you touched on augmented reality and I know that during Royal Ascot you were experimenting with augmented reality. Where do you see that fitting in with racing? Is it that you can point your phone at a horse and it will tell you the betting odds or is it something you know, more simple than that or something more sort of uh, more technical than that? Well, I think the beauty of technology in this modern era is the fact that you're really only limited by your imagination to a degree. The mechanics are there, the intelligence is there. So when it comes to augmented reality, effectively, whatever we want to activate, we could activate if it was relevant to, to the race course. So it could be, as you said, you hold your device up and it could do wayfinding for you, or it could give you in, uh, information based upon a particular jockey or a horse. Um, the, the opportunities are limitless, really. And what do you think has been the most exciting tech project you've worked on in the 18 months that you've, you've been here so far? Um, well, I think uh, we, we've done a lot in 18 months. When I, when I think of the, 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 the uh, overhaul of the audio, which has just started with Bose, having a major sound supplier like that come on board as a partner is really significant. I think the upgrade of the, the TVs has been really exciting. Um, point of sale, we're just literally starting down that journey. The opportunities there are huge both from a customer service perspective, but also operationally. Um, for me, I think the NFC ticketing, knowing that we were only the third venue that worked with these collaborative partners and the first one in racing to deliver something like that. What we can do with augmented reality is really exciting. What we've already done is really exciting, actually. Um, and there's a, there's a whole host more. What we're finding in technology and the sphere is, in general is that audience attitudes and appetites are changing and you know we're seeing the rise of Netflix and things like that. How is that changing uh, Ascot, the races, but also kind of in your feeling live sports in general? Um, I, I think uh, it, it's a good point. I think that uh, when you see the effects that uh, the change of demand driven mainly by younger generations and the flexibility that um, the technology brings to, to people, having an impact on things like retail, having an impact on things like music, um, like movies, even eating out. If you, you go back uh, 15 years ago, um, when broadly speaking, this is when we had our last big revamp at the venue and, and the stand was, was rebuilt, you didn't have Netflix, you didn't have iPhones, you didn't have Just Eat. <laughs> you, you, you didn't really have things like Spotify. Uh, and suddenly all of these um, technologies have emerged over the last 12, 15 years. And they've become de facto, they've become the norm in a relatively short space of time. And the churn is much greater. So I think when you see the impact that's already taken, all that technology's had on a lot of other sectors, we would be naive to believe that sport won't also be impacted at some point. Um, I used to like going to, to, to watch football um, and uh, whilst I, I will still go, the experience you get at home now is, is quite amazing. If you've got a good audio TV set up and you have all your friends over and you've got the food that you want to eat and you've got the people sat with you that you want to sit with you, 
So that's, they're the kind of obstacles or challenges that we as venues are wrestling with now. We've got to give somebody, we've got to give the customer something unique, something that's going to make them want to come away from the home comforts that they have. Um, we, we touched upon it with um, in our conversations prior to this, that Ascot as a venue has more corporate boxes than any venue in Europe. And each one of those boxes is a personal space for people when they come inside. Now, you think of your living room and the average person's living room today, and there's probably more technology in there than there, in, than there is in a lot of the boxes that they spend their time in. So all of these elements need to be considered. When we're delivering uh, a customer experience, we need to think about what people would want and if they're going to stay here for as long as they do, because unlike some other sports, they can be here for six or seven hours. So how do you entertain people when they see 22 minutes of racing throughout a day? How do you keep them interested? How do you keep them um, focused on that day, on that experience, always being good? That, that's one of the big challenges, and that's where excellent customer service comes into, into play. Good facilities, good food. It's not just about the technology. The technology helps to enhance things, um, but it's, it's more than just that. So when we talk about how technology has changed um, certain sectors and how it will inevitably change sport, we also need to be mindful that it's just a single component in a much bigger picture. And one of the challenges you must have, this is, we're in the stadium at the moment, the main grandstand, it's obviously an incredibly large building, lots of corporate boxes, lots of people flow, all, all those things. How do, you, how do you make sure that the air quality is good, the sound isn't too loud, the, you know, the people aren't getting bottlenecked in, into certain areas. Do you, do, you have, do you account for that as well? Or? So we've been exploring certain technologies and then in all, all, the, all the new boxes we've been putting uh, sensors in there to monitor things like temperature and noise and humidity. Uh, and we're also looking at that for the flow of, uh, or, the, or to track the flow of movement of people in certain areas around the race course. Because you're right, it's a really important point. Um, it's a very different venue depending on the weather as well. So if we can get 75,000 people to a race for, for Royal Ascot as an example, if the sun's shining, a lot of them will want to be outside. But if it's pouring down with rain, then suddenly you get this influx, this surge of people coming inside, and you have a completely different challenge to deal with. So yes, we want to know where those bottlenecks are, and we are using some cutting edge technology to monitor and manage how people move around the venue. But that's still very early stages, but something that we want to progress with. I've been to Royal Ascot, I've been to other races and stuff, and one of the things I found with, with the venue is that you rarely watch a race from the same point. Unlike a stadium where you have a defined seat and you, you sit and watch the game, you know, at Twickenham, you, you know, in the East Wing or what have you, and then here you're kind of watching at one end and you're watching another end or you're watching from a, this grandstand or you're kind of moving around. How Are you using technology to help people experience, to understand how that's experienced or experience it in different ways? Or is it just one of the benefits of, of a big grandstand and, and the ability to walk, you know, to explore? It's a very good point. So um, when you look at sports stadiums, when they are hosting things like football or, or rugby or even cricket, um, for the majority of the time, an individual will come to that venue and they will be in a single seat. So they won't be that mobile. 
we're very different and we, I, I think we fall more into a template for a smart city than potentially any other sports uh, venue simply because people will come here and they will actually explore the breadth of the site and they will watch a race in different locations. They may not even watch the race always on the track. They may watch it from a screen when they're in a restaurant or in a bar. And that's one of the big appeals of, of Ascot for me is that, especially Royal Ascot, I see it as much as a lifestyle event as I do a sports event. Many people will come here um, for an expression of fashion, right, to explore fashion at its very best. So it's not just about racing, it's not about the best in British racing, it's also about the best in fashion. Um, and now it has such a global reach and we are, you know, we're, we're very fortunate to benefit from that. But I do think to a lot of people, what you're wearing and what other people are wearing is almost as, as important as who is racing out on the racetrack. And so in terms of technology, um, in some respects, it's almost uh, an aside. So we, we, we've been exploring ideas around, selfies are very popular here. It kind of gives weight to my point just now about you, you want to be seen in a special outfit. So a lot of photography takes place. Uh, so the ability maybe to bring augmented reality into that experience so that maybe in the future you could have your photo taken with a celebrity or a jockey through the mechanism of augmented reality. I think also making wayfinding very intelligent. We don't want to literally plaster the venue with screens so we detract from the beauty of this experience, you know, from the traditional aspect. So look at those beautifully crafted uh, totems that have wayfinding on them. What's stopping us from being able to hold a device up to that? and then being told electronically, digitally, this is the way to go, without having any impact on the aesthetics of the place. Um, so there are certainly different ways for us to look at um, how we can enhance the customer experience through technology, but we shouldn't, we should always be mindful of the fact that part of what makes this place so attractive is the fact that it still keeps those traditional values as well. But that's not to say, to my earlier point, that uh, we're going to remain complacent because uh, as, as I've said already tradition isn't a refuge it cannot we, we cannot afford for it to be uh, and I think the business is committed actually to putting technology at the heart um, uh, of, of its plan for the future and its strategy going forward. The Amazon Kindle first launched in November 2007 and for many a bookworm has been the easiest and most enjoyable way to carve their way through dozens if not hundreds of books at a time. Ask any Kindle owner and it's easy to see why. They are small, lightweight and easy to use and easy to read on. In short, the Amazon Kindle range popularity shows no sign of waning. But we've come a long way since the first Kindle in 2007 and while e-ink technology hasn't massively changed in the last 12 years, the shapes and sizes of the Kindle have. Is it still worth getting one? And if so, which one? With so many to choose from, I've dragged along Chris Hall, Pocklin's editor, to join me to tell us what he thinks and which one you should get. So Chris, walk us through it. Well, I think the starting place for this is talking about the display itself. And this is one of the points that some people don't quite grasp, especially now that there is illumination on Kindles, is exactly what you're looking at. And it's really the difference between e-ink and 
liquid crystal displays that you have on tablets and phones. The big difference is the way that the power is used in these devices, that in an e-ink display, it only uses battery power to, when it changes the image. And because you're looking at a book, you probably only need to refresh that image every couple of minutes. Whereas on a tablet or a phone, you're probably doing it 60 times a second or 90 or 120 times a second even. So there's a very, very big difference in what you end up looking at. And e-ink is very good at giving you a, dis a display surface that looks like a book, which is why it's used for these types of reading devices. Um, and that really, that really outlines the difference between using a Kindle and using something like your iPad. Now, an iPad is fantastic. It can do lots and lots of things, and the Kindle cannot do any of that stuff. But as I always like to think about these things, the Kindle is a device that is built for a single purpose. And in that sense, it's very, very good at doing one thing. And that one thing is reading. If you're not interested in reading, <laughs> then you really don't need to be interested in a Kindle. So let's talk about uh, the Kindle family. There are really three different devices here, and there has been a big change over the past few years to increase the features offered lower down. And that makes choosing one a little bit more tricky because you can now get the entry-level Amazon Kindle and you can get that with a front light and it will only cost you about 65 or 70 pounds. So pretty cheap and easy. So that's pretty cheap, yeah. I mean, it doesn't do everything that the full range does, but the fact that it has that front light on it means it's 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 able you're able to read it in the dark. And for me, I find this really, really useful because I go to bed, turn the lights off, nobody else has to be kept awake, and you can read this without needing a torch like you would if you were trying to read a book. Yeah, because I remember the first couple of Kindles, you kind of had to you had to either read it by torchlight or you had to they kind of you'd sell this this light that would attach to the top that would sort of yeah. shine onto the screen very old school yeah that's right i mean one of the great things about the, the surface of the display is it's not reflective like you get on a phone or tablet so it's very very good for reading it on the beach in direct sunlight you can see it perfectly well it's completely fine or if you're camping you can crawl into your tent whilst everybody else is asleep and you can read your book which is fantastic so amazon kindle you can get one with a front light now starting right down at the bottom of the range as you step up, you start to get a few more features. And that will mean that now what's called the Kindle Paperwhite now also has waterproofing on it. And, you know, this is depend depending on, yeah, if you're going to the beach or if you're uh, someone who likes to read in the bath, and a lot of people do, it's just an added um, piece of mind that if you do drop it or have an accident, spill something on it, then your Kindle is going to survive. Moving up to the top of the line, you have something called the Kindle Oasis. And the Kindle Oasis is very different to the other two devices in terms of design. In terms of functionality, it's waterproof, it's illuminated, and on the most recent version, it can also change the color temperature of the display, a little bit like phones and tablets and laptops will do, so that it reduces the blue light in the evening. So you can read at night and not feel like you're wide awake after you finish reading. Exactly. It's I would say it's a very minor thing. Anyway, I was, uh, as I was saying, the Oasis is mostly about design and it's a premium design. It's very slim through the body. It's designed to be as lightweight as possible, but it also has a seven inch display rather than a six inch display. And I actually really, really like reading on it now and have got used to that larger size. And I think it would be difficult for me personally to go back to one of those smaller sizes. But there is also a cost associated with that. And 
by the time you come to buy a Kindle Oasis, you're up at the sort of two hundred and thirty pound mark. It's quite a lot for a uh, quite a lot for a book. <laughs> exactly. I predicted that that's what you were going to say, and I would say that if you're spending a lot of time reading, like if you really, really love it, if you're a sort of thirty or forty books a year kind of reader, then why not do it on something that is fabulously designed and is lightweight? Uh, because the other two devices are great and they're really good for accessible reading um, and they have all of those advantages of being able to finish a book and then instantly download the next and keep reading and all of that kind of stuff. But they don't have the same feel. And if you're spending a lot of time holding it, you might just want to pay a little bit more money for it. So the way you've talked about this is so far as if you haven't dived into the Kindle experience so far. And if you have, are the new range of Kindles, which it feels like they're kind of now into a, a very frequent update cycle, are they now worth looking at? Is it that sense of if you've been enjoying an old Kindle that's not waterproof, that hasn't got a paper white, should you think, right, actually, now's a good time to upgrade? I think the only real reason to upgrade, and Amazon probably won't like this line of thought, but it's very true. The only real reason to upgrade, in my opinion, is if you don't have one with the front lighting on it, because the front lighting provides a huge difference in the experience. That's it for this week. If you've enjoyed the show, can you please give us a five-star rating on the podcast platform you're listening on? It really will help raise our profile and let others know you liked it too. Until next Friday, pip pip. 